Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. The shrewd steward, by forgiving debt, will bring himself into good standing with his master's debtors. He's very shrewd. He's sharp. He's acute. He's intelligent, clever, alert, canny, observant, discriminating, crafty, wise, and far-sighted. Thinking of his future. The steward's going to ingratiate himself. Do you know what that means? To ingratiate is to establish oneself in the favor or good graces of someone, especially by deliberate effort. He will ingratiate himself. He forgives a partial debt and he will ingratiate himself to the master's debtors. They will owe him something back. Was he losing more money for the master by doing this? Because he's already been charged with mismanagement and he's almost out the door. Perhaps he was giving away his own commission because he's the middleman and he gets a cut. He was getting the landlord's renters to pay up, even if it was a discounted payment. They're paying their bills. They're paying some of it at least. But before he gets fired, he's thinking, maybe if I do this, someone's going to let me lodge with them out of gratitude for this discounted partial debt. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And the steward said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Quickly, 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 hurry, write it. 100 gets written to 50. That's a 50% reduction in debt for the debtor. Wow. In our time, that would be 800 gallons of oil. And he's saying, let's write the books. Let's cook the books and say, you only have 400 gallons. Ooh, that's a, that, ooh, the debtor's like, all right, quick, 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 write it. What's that mean? That means less export tax for the landowner. He's only going to pay export tax on 400 gallons of oil instead of 800 gallons of oil to Rome. Hmm. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, well, I owe 100 measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. Oh, in our measurements, that's 1,000 bushels of wheat. He says, make it down to 800 bushels of wheat. That's a 20% reduction of debt for the farmer. Less export tax for the landowner as well. The master's going to be happy. The debtor's going to be happy. Wheat also had a high tariff, not as high of olive oil because the trees are worth more than the land. But he's going to take a loss of personal commission, but he's going to make money and he's going to make friends. He's going to win over the landowner, his master, and he's going to win over the small farmer who's in debt. So it's a win, win, win. Because he's ingratiating people to himself. They owe him something now. They're going to take him in when he gets fired. The master's going to be happy. The debtors are going to be happy. Everybody loves him. He's going to have a lot of friends. Less income on the books for the master. Less export taxes for the master. By cutting the middleman steward's commission out of the equation, the master actually will come out ahead financially. The small farmer will come out ahead financially. It's a win, win, win. Who's going to lose? Only the Roman government. The only loser is the oppressive Roman government who we hate anyway. The steward has been dishonest with the Roman government. Well, they're dishonest with us. You know what they're doing? They're oppressing our people. They're making us pay taxes. They're not, they don't care about the Roman government. The master commended the dishonest steward for his prudence. Prudence, by dictionary, is a skill and good judgment in the use of resources. For instance, when you sit down to write a check, 
you may be prudent to check your bank balance to make sure you have enough in your account to cover the check. Prudence, by definition, is a caution or circumspection to danger or risk. It would be very prudent for your son to know how deep the water is when he jumps off the cliff. That's prudence. Prudence is the shrewdness in the management of affairs. Like Nina is prudent with her finances, that's a major factor in her success as a small businesswoman. It's prudent. Now, when we went to Greece this summer, I wanted to buy a necklace and the guy's like, would you like me to calculate the price before the taxes or after the taxes? And I'm like, well, what are the taxes, you know? And he's like, let me calculate. And he's putting something in, you know, and then he runs and gets another man from the back room and they're talking and then they come back and it would be this price if you pay this before the VAT. It would be this price if you pay this after the VAT. I said, well, which is better for me? That's all I care about, you know? So then at the airport, I got to go through the line and stand and get the VAT. And then the lady saying, where is the piece of merchandise? Oh, it's in the other suit. I mean, it's just like, anyway, if you've traveled to some of these countries with the export tax, you kind of understand the middleman thing. So this middleman steward is being very prudent. He's being very shrewd in the management of his affairs for the master. And the master has commended the dishonest steward toward Rome for his prudence. The servant is concerned about his future, so he's prudent before he's terminated. And the steward has been planning for his future in a very shrewd way. As Christians, before we are fired, which means before we die, we may want to ingratiate ourselves to others who we could possibly be living with for all eternity. (laughs) And who is that? The communion of saints. We might want to have some friends in higher places, right? interceding for us on our behalf. We might want to have a cloud of witnesses that's encouraging us and surrounding us and calling us on to greater things. We may want to give some of our earthly commission away even and ingratiate friends in our internal home. We might want to give some almsgiving to the poor. We can't use this money when we're dead. We might want to just give it away, not in a dishonest way, but in an honest way in the spiritual life to earn an eternal home. We came into the world naked with absolutely nothing. We're going out of the world naked with absolutely nothing. You can't take it with you when you go, right? So we may also want to totally forgive any of our debts and any of our debtors as Jesus forgave us our debts as we pay every day in the Our Father. Not a partial forgiveness of debt, but a total forgiveness of debt. Totally forgiving debts and trespasses, not partially The master commended the dishonest steward for his prudence, for the sons of this world are wiser in their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. Oh, really? That could be a bit of irony and a bit of sarcasm, a bit of an idiom. Unrighteous mammon will always fail. Righteous covenant relationship means to be in right relationship, in right standing. You can't be in a right-standing covenant relationship with money. You can't. Money is mammon. That's the Greek word for it. It's impossible. It's not a person. You can't be in covenant with a paper bill. It's an inanimate object, but it's a very powerful inanimate object that we need, that we need for our security, that we need to get ahead, that we think we need for, you know, we feel so much better if we have a little money in the bank, if we save for a rainy day, if we have a retirement fund, if we if we have insurance, if we, you know. It makes us feel secure, right? We don't have to trust anyone but ourselves. We can be self-sufficient, right? It becomes a God, little g God, an idol. And Jesus is telling them, pick your master. 
pick your master because you cannot serve both God and mammon. It's impossible. You have to choose. You want God or you want money? Who is going to give you eternal security? Your wealth management company? (laughs) Or Jesus Christ for all eternity? For the sons of this world are wiser in their own generation than the sons of light. Sometimes people of the world are savvier than people of God. So it seems, right? It seems like they get ahead. They're a little craftier. They, their ethics are a little different. They're getting ahead. And, and we're looking at them going, wow, wow, wow. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that business deal. He just got with. Wow. And here's the Christians at church sitting there doing nothing. Kidding. People who live of the world care more about things of the world. They hear and now, isn't that a great necklace? I know. <laughs> I know. She's a worldly Christian. They put more time and energy into things of the world and cares of the world so they can get ahead in the world. That's where they put their time. Some of them are workaholics. They work 80 hours a week. They go, 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 read the stock market. Worldliness is serving many little g-gods. And John tells us in his gospel that we are to live in the world, but not be of the world. And Jesus is saying the same thing. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon so that when it fails you, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. They don't have eternal habitations. Unrighteous mammon. You can't serve both God and mammon. You want an eternal habitation? Here are your friends. Here are the ones you want to ingratiate yourself to. Using mammon to buy friendships on earth in hopes of an earthly payback. Ingratiating oneself to others for worldly gain. You know what that is? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's how you ingratiate friends. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That's a principle, a worldly principle. It describes a sense of a quid pro quo. Have you heard of that? A quid pro quo. It's a Latin phrase, quid pro quo. Say that fast three times. It means making a certain kind of deal. You do this for me and I'll do that for you. There's strings attached. There's expectation attached. A quid pro quo means doing a favor you expect to be paid back instead of doing the favor for its own sake. And this is popular with politicians often. They're accused of doing quid pro quo. Someone donated to their campaign, so now they're expected to get favors in return. You know how it works. It can have a shady vibe. Jesus says, he who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And he who is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust you to the true riches? The true riches of the kingdom of heaven are every soul. And you have not been faithful in what which is another's, who will give you what which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Well, the Pharisees are listening. And the Pharisees were lovers of money and power and self-sufficiency. They heard all this and they scoffed at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone enters it violently. Did you know you enter the kingdom of God violently? But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. 
And you might have said, why in the heck is Jesus bringing a marriage and divorce right now? Out of the blue, out of the clear blue sky. Because of these two, Herod Antipas, the current ruler, and his wife Herodias, which is really his brother Philip's wife. And they're living in adultery. And you Pharisees, how dare you, the audacity of you, you want to kill me for setting people free. And you've got your own king of the Jews, the Edomite king Herod, who is living with Philip's wife in adultery. And you're mad at me for healing people on a Shabbat? How dare you, you lovers of money and power? Here they are, Herodias and Antipas. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. For Herod had sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John spoke the truth. It cost him the violence of his head and a decapitation. Herodias had a grudge against him. She wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod kept him safe. If the Pharisees are going to condemn Jesus, should they not also condemn the king of the Jews, King Herod the Edomite king who's sitting in the palace in adultery? According to your law, he should be stoned, and so should Herodias. King Herod and Herodias should both have been stoned for adultery according to Levitical laws, yet the Pharisees are silent. They are in cahoots. We learn this in Revelation. They are in cahoots with Herod, the Edomite king of the Jews, and they are in cahoots with Rome, the governing body of Israel. The Pharisees are in the middle trying to keep everybody happy, trying to have a win-win-win-win-win-win-win situation for them. His cousin John has been beheaded because of their love of power and money, and they are in cahoots with him, and they don't want to hear him talk about this one more time. Divorce with Jesus always raises the dignity of women. Back to what it was in the garden. He's always raising women. Women, if you're divorced, don't cringe when he talks about divorce because he's raising your dignity. The good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone enters it violently. This is what it costs John. Talk about violence. He speaks the truth. He enters into the kingdom of God. He preaches the truth. He baptizes people. He says, go to him, go to him, go to him, points them all to Jesus. And this is how what happens to him. His head is put on a platter for a 13-year-old seductive dance in an incestuous relation now with Herod. More is expected of her than just the dance. And here, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. I want the head of John from my mom. She doesn't like him. Okay. John, who preached the truth, who baptized even Jesus in the Jordan River. Everyone enters the kingdom of God violently because we are baptized into death, the death of John and the death of Jesus Christ. You are baptized into his death. You join his death. You go under the water. The little baby drowns. He comes up out of the water. He's resurrected. But in between, in between the water, drowning and the resurrection, there's a lot of suffering to be done. We walk his passion with him when we are baptized into him. And that's why we suffer as a mystical body of Christ. And that's why there's something to suffering. It's redemptive. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? That's violence. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death so that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father and we too might walk in newness of life. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is saying, I'm 100% fulfillment of the Mosaic law. I'm the new Moses. 
I have fulfilled all the scripture. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that's a low blow. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're never, ever, ever, ever getting into the kingdom of heaven. That's saying the Pharisees are really bad. They're not getting in. Now we have a story of rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man. He was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. He was full of sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Day after day after day after day. And every time that rich man leaves his house, he has to crawl over the body of this guy. Never says the rich man sinned, but he passed this man every single day of his life. Maybe you pass a beggar every day on your way to work. Maybe they're right there on that corner where you drive by to the high V grocery store. Every day to leave his home, the rich man had to cross the path of Lazarus. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. Now, I love the Catholic Mass of the Resurrection. If you go to a funeral, it's one of the best reasons to be Catholic, so you can have a Mass of the Resurrection when you die. And they always sing the song of farewell. And it's, may Christ who called you take you to himself. May angels lead you to the bosom of Abraham. That's a good thing. That's where you want to be. Go to Papa, Papa Abraham, the father of all children. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Son, you're my son too. You're one of my children. Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. But now he, Lazarus, is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There's a great chasm in between them. There's no crossing over. Once it's over, it's over. You can't get across to the other side, and they can't get across to this side once they're staring at the beatific vision. It's like the fall. When they fell, and they're expelled from the garden, and God puts the, the angel with the, the seraphim with the sword, to, there's this big chasm. They can't get back without Jesus. He's the only way back. There was no chasm for humanity on earth. So every day, this rich man could have helped Lazarus. Every single day while they were on earth, there's no chasm. He could have, they could have interacted. They could have touched each other. He could have brought food. He could have given them, they could have prayed together. It, there's no chasm. Humans can help other humans while on earth till their last breath. And he said, then I beg you, Father, Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. Five brothers. What's five the five books of Moses, the Torah, the whole Jewish race, all my brothers, all my Jewish brothers. But Abraham said, they have Moses 
the five books of Moses, they have Torah and they have all the prophets that I sent. They killed each and every one of them, by the way, including John, my cousin. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So he's saying, let them read the scriptures. I've given it all to you. It's right there. You each have a personal copy now these days. Take the scriptures seriously while you're on earth. I'm so glad you're here taking the scriptures seriously and knowing what they say and catechizing your own people in your life. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to them, no, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Oh, there are only two men in the New Testament named Lazarus. And it was a common name. The Greek name is Lazarus. The Hellenized name is Eleazar. And it means God has helped me. My God is helper, helped of God. The other Lazarus in the New Testament is only found in John. Sisters were sent to Jesus saying, Lord, the one you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness is not unto death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. What? 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 He wants to make sure he's good and dead. <laughs> right? The Jews believe three days the spirits are still hovering. On the fourth day, they leave. You're dead, dead, dead. And you start smelling because the Mediterranean sun decomposes the body quickly. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. The sisters say, there's going to be a stench, Lord. Don't open the tomb. There's going to be a stench. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This is what that rich man had asked for, that if you would just raise, send him back from the dead and tell my brothers. Well, here it's happening. He's got the same name, Lazarus. <laughs> Coincidence? The dead man came out. His hands and feet were bound with bandages. His face was wrapped with a cloth. And he had just said a few chapters earlier, send Lazarus to my father's house. And if he rises from the dead, my five brothers are sure to repent and believe. Yeah? 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 Everyone's going to believe now, especially the Pharisees? Jesus raised Lazarus. Did the Pharisees repent and believe? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and Martha and saw what he did, believed. Some of them did. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on thus, everyone is going to believe in him. And the Romans are going to come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. So they're in cahoots with Rome. And they're in cahoots with Edom, the Edomite king, Herod. And they're worried about their own self and their own job and their own position and their own money. So from that day on, they, the Pharisees, took counsel on how to put Jesus to death. And they also wanted to put Lazarus to death now. Do you remember that in John's gospel? Now Lazarus has a great big X on his back and they want him done too because he's evidence that he was raised from the dead and everyone's talking about it. The law and prophets didn't matter. The resurrection from the dead with many, many, many eyewitnesses didn't matter. Did the Pharisees repent upon seeing Lazarus arise from the dead? Will they believe when Jesus rises from the dead? One Pharisee did. And he believed before the resurrection of Jesus. And who was it? Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. It didn't even take the resurrection of the dead for Nicodemus to believe in Jesus. 
He brings a hundred pounds of myrrh. Do you know how much money that is? He's not a lover of money. Give it away. Alms, alms, bury the dead. This is sacramental. He brings a hundred pounds of myrrh mixed with aloe for a kingly burial because he realized Jesus Christ was the King of kings and Lord of lords. They only used 40 pounds of myrrh for Gamaliel, the rabbi who taught Paul the greatest rabbi in all the land. He only got 40 pounds of myrrh. Jesus got a hundred pounds of myrrh. The Bible has 10 separate occasions when God resurrected people back to life in the Bible. Three are in the Old Testament. Seven are in the New Testament. The seventh is Jesus. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The seventh resurrection in the New Testament is on the third day. Perfection of divinity. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and still some don't believe. Do you believe? It's pretty far-fetched. Do you believe? Yes. Really? <laughs> Paul says, now if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Is your faith in vain? No. no. Good. The parable of the poor man Lazarus and the words of Christ on the cross to the good thief, as well as other New Testament texts, speak of a final destiny of the soul, a destiny which can be different for some than others. Like Lazarus's destiny was different than the rich man's destiny of the soul. And there was a great chasm in between. This is Jesus on the cross with the good thief and the bad thief. The Eastern Orthodox cross has the footplate. One goes up, one of the thieves goes up, and one of the thieves goes down. The good thief goes up to heaven, the bad thief goes down. Because Jesus says... He says to Jesus, that, that good thief, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingly power. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is a paradise. Our souls will be judged. Some will go up, some will go down. It does matter what we do with our lives and the gifts he's given us. We need to be good stewards that manage our gifts well. Not dishonest stewards, but honest stewards that maximize gifts for the master because they're all gifts of his Holy Spirit alive within us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you again for this delightful eschatological night of two new parables from St. Luke. St. Luke, your inspiration of the Holy Spirit is amazing. Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, you're amazing. Thank you for teaching us tonight. Help us be good stewards. Help us be honest stewards that maximize the gifts you've showered on us for your kingdom's glory. The violence of coming into your kingdom, the death to ourselves, the violence of conversion when we leave the world behind and follow you is worth it, Lord. For all eternity, you have a place waiting for us. We praise you and we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your word and the way it inspires our minds and our hearts. Amen. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 16, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.